Amen. Let's remain standing for prayer yet again, shall we? So, Father, we quiet our hearts for just a minute here. We ask that your Holy Spirit will take your word like you do so often on Sunday morning. As we sit still, you do your work through your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us willing hearts to walk in obedience, to cooperate with the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. Father, my heart is blessed this morning. Would you bless whoever it was that you used to bless our dear brother with this iPad? And would you repay them? I thank you for the opportunities that we have at hand, Lord. Help us to be good stewards, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, be seated. Take your Bibles. And I want to begin this morning by dropping in on an, on an early church church service. Acts chapter 13 And I want you to look at the first three verses of Acts chapter 13 for our introduction this morning. And we're going to drop in unexpectedly to a worship service that's already begun. Some of you do that regularly here, but we're going to do that together. And uh, that was set in love. And uh, Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, notice what happens here. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menane, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. By the way, some people think that Menane, the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, might have been led to Christ by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison somewhere along the line. And Saul was there, and by those who were imprisoned. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You see what was happening in this church service? There were different people present. They named some of the key leaders or men of the church, evidently, Lucius, Menane, Saul, Barnabas. And what it says in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and, what's the next word? Fasting. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now verse 3 again. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Isn't that interesting? How how would you like it? Some morning you come into church. We say this is a special service this morning and we're going to worship the Lord. And by the way, we are fasting together today. And you say, oh man, I didn't even have breakfast yet. And what's going on here? They are fasting and worshiping. And then the Holy Spirit evidently began to move through some of these men. And, and God appointed a couple of them to go be sent out. And they fasted some more and prayed and sent them away after laying hands upon them. You ever been in a church service like that? Have you ever fasted? Do you even know what fasting is? Well, we've been, what I say, poking around our Bibles in a series on prayer this summer. 
where we're actually in a series working our way through the book of Hebrews, and we decided to come up for air. And uh, this summer, while people are coming and going, we are focusing on what it means to be a church that prays. And what I mean by saying that we're poking around our Bibles is that I have not worked hard to make this systematic. Um, the, the topic of prayer is a huge topic in our Bibles. And I'm just uh, week to week on the things that I've been pondering and meditating and things that I think would be valuable for us to cover in this series, we're poking around on that. And this Sunday, I want us on our series on prayer, our summer series on prayer, I want us to think about how fasting fits in with prayer. Now, you notice in the church of Antioch that they were fasting and worshiping. It's one of the only places that it mentions doing anything else while they were fasting other than prayer. I just wanted us to visit that and think about what that would be like if we were to call for a fast, or if we were to say, we're going to pray and fast together. Some of you have probably fasted before. Others of you may never even have heard of fasting. You don't know what in the world I'm talking about yet. Others of you have thought about fasting and you know about it, but then you decided that the drive through at Chick-fil-A would take care of that feeling and And you changed your mind. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 6 this morning for our actual text. And I just wanted to visit the church at Antioch for just a few minutes there. And I wanted us to see that in the early church and in the book of Acts, it was actually quite common for them to fast and to be involved in fasting and praying. Well, what in the world is fasting? How does fasting relate to praying And if we're going to be a praying church, should we also be a fasting church? There's a lot of questions about fasting, and we're going to study our Bibles this morning together. I want you to go to our Lord's teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. We're right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. You'll recall that the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It is uh, the the most extensive... uh, Uh, uninterrupted teaching sequence of our Lord Jesus that is recorded for us um, in the Gospels. I want to point out a pattern, though, that our Lord has slipped into in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in Matthew 6 now, this is where we'll be uh, basically for the rest of the morning. Uh, You will find it helpful, I would believe. I would encourage you, even if you don't normally use your notes, it might be helpful for you to keep them nearby um, because there's a number of things that I'm going to say that it will be helpful to go um, uh, more speedily through that section if you can look at it and read uh, part of the notes with me. But in Matthew chapter 6, as our Lord is teaching on the mount there, the crowds have gathered, and he begins to poke his finger into the spiritual practices of giving, of prayer, and of fasting, and he's into a pattern here. He's, he's wanting to confront people who do spiritual acts of service or exercise the spiritual disciplines so that people will see what they're doing. The idea would be if I do this publicly, then people will say, my, my, what a spiritual guy that Pastor Van is. And, and our Lord, uh, notice that he touches right away on giving, on giving. Um, Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
There it is. In order to be seen by them. You are, you are practicing an act of righteousness. In your older King James Bible, it might use the word alms. Do not do your alms before men to be seen by them. What was alms in the New Testament or acts of righteousness? It was By definition, something given for the relief of the poor, like money or food. Something given for the relief of the poor. And so you would give, and Jesus is teaching, and he says, now don't do this. So in that day, the Pharisees especially would make a big deal at the temple when they give, or making sure the public noticed their giving, all right? And we rejoice together when somebody gives a gift, but we don't rejoice in their name, God knows who gave. Our Lord goes on and he says in verse 5, and when you pray, we were here last week, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, strong word, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that, here's the same phrase, that they may be seen by others. They love to pray out loud in public at the synagogue or on the street corners so that people will say, my, what a spiritual person. How godly. He goes on to remind them, this is very important actually, a reminder, he says, verse 6, let's go ahead and read verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do or pagans for they repeat repetitiously. Be very careful about a system where you might count beads and and pray over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that you somehow might uh, find the righteousness of God in some special way or that God might be pleased by your repetitious praying. Our Lord Jesus taught specifically that is not the case. Do not be like them. And then he goes on, as we pointed out even last week, and he teaches a model prayer to his disciples and he says, just say, Our Father who art in heaven. You have a father in heaven and you can talk to him and he cares about you and he'll meet your needs, even your daily bread, the the need to eat. And then verses 14 through and 15 were what we talked about last week, this idea that if you're praying and worshiping and you realize that you have someone you haven't forgiven, you need to go and seek forgiveness. And it's a roadblock. A lack of forgiveness is a roadblock to answered prayer. And now, once again, we get to our text here, verses 16 through 18. Once again, we have the same pattern. And here, our Lord is going to teach about fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the, he uses the same word, hypocrites. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. There it is, a third time. Don't give your alms. Don't say your prayers in a way that you're drawing attention to yourself. Don't give your offerings in a way to draw attention to yourself. And do not fast. Oh, you say, well, Pastor Van, I don't have a problem with that because I never fast. Well, it sounds to me like our Lord Jesus thinks that we might fast because look what he says. When you fast, it is very interesting that he is not telling them not to fast. He's not teaching too much about fasting here. In fact, the Bible doesn't have much about fasting as far as instructional. But it is assumed by our Lord Jesus. And when you fast, 
And then he wants to point out there is a certain way to not do it, and there's a certain way to do it. But before we go into breaking down the passage and understanding deeper what our Lord Jesus is teaching, I want us to refer to our notes. And I began with a bullet list here of information because I got to thinking that it is possible that some people here have never even heard of this before. And you almost think like, what kind of weird thing is that? And it is so strange to think about fasting in our culture. We just, we don't talk about it in our church very much. We don't exercise it in our culture very much. And I think it would be good for us to just define what we're talking about here. And the most rapid way we can do that is to just click off an information list here that we all understand of what I'm talking about today, of what I understand the Bible is teaching. First of all, fasting simply means to abstain from eating food. And now that you know what it is, you're really unimpressed with it. To abstain from eating food. Are you, are you kidding me? Why would I do that? But that's what it is. It is this idea of breaking up my normal practice of eating, which we all are pretty good, pretty practiced at it, and not doing it for a specific reason. And secondly, the biblical concept of fasting is this. It is to deprive oneself of food, parentheses, or detaching from some normal activity for the purpose of entering into a time of committed, focused prayer. There it is. You say, oh, okay, so I'm not going to eat because I'm going to spend more time in prayer. Exactly. Not only that... Fasting seems to be indicative in the New Testament of, of a burden in your, on your heart, of an issue in your life uh, that, is, that is to the degree that it is so important that eating doesn't even matter. Now, for most of us, next bullet point, in our culture and today, it is most commonly practiced by some groups, denominations, some religious groups, when they're observing Lent. You'll hear about it then. If you were raised in a Lutheran church, maybe, or you were raised in a Catholic church, there might have been some conversation about fasting during the Lent season. And often what it's kind of morphed into for them is 40 days before Easter, uh, if you're observing the religious calendar, you're going to observe this Lenten season, and um, you will pick something out that you're going to deprive yourself of Uh, As you move towards Easter, and I'm not sure what is taught or what is thought, Uh, I actually looked up the purpose of Lent in an actual Roman Catholic theology text last night, and it actually talked about that this is part of receiving an ongoing grace from our Lord Jesus. So the idea would be that, like a man told me one time, he was going to give up ice cream for Lent, okay? But I want to warn you, though, a little bit. So you have to be really careful about taking on a mindset. Now, this guy that I knew who gave up ice cream for Lent, um, he didn't do it for this reason. He really did want to just kind of remind himself to be more disciplined spiritually and to pray more. Uh, But sometimes I think people will do this, especially in the Lenten season, and they'll give up something that they like to do, like ice cream, that somehow God Almighty, sovereign God of the universe, on his throne, looks down and says, look at that guy. He just turned down a Klondike bar. I am so impressed with that. And that is just incredible. You see, you cannot impress God by not eating ice cream. 
You cannot impress God by not eating anything. God is not, by, not impressed by these things, and that is not the purpose of fasting, to impress God or to prove to God your spirituality. You see, you cannot show God that you are somehow more righteous because you're not eating certain food or any food or going on some kind of a 40-day fast even. Our righteousness only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith. The only thing that will impress a holy God is when you've been to the cross, you've admitted your sinfulness, the blood of Christ has cleansed you from all sin, and the righteousness of Christ has now been appropriated to you by, by your faith, imputed to you is the word, given to you as a free gift of God's grace by faith because you admit your sinfulness, you receive a forgiveness that is in Christ alone, and Christ takes your sin and he gives you your righteousness, and now God looks at you and he says, well, look at that guy. He's robed in the righteousness of Christ. I am very impressed by that. I recognize that. And you see, you, you, you can't get that on your own. It is given to you as a free gift by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. And that is salvation. So I want to be very careful to make sure that you understand that giving up ice cream or, you know, uh, or you can't trick God either. You know, I'm going to give up broccoli for Lent. (laughs) Just it's really on my heart. No liver and onions. No, you don't. It's not how it works. Back to our bullet point list. In Scripture, I want you to understand, this is our fourth bullet point down. In Scripture, fasting is always associated with prayer. Now, I showed you at the church in Antioch in Acts 13 that they were worshiping and fasting, but immediately we read that they were fasting and praying. That's the way it is in Scripture. Every model that you see of fasting in Scripture is associated with prayer. In Scripture, fasting is always associated with prayer. The idea is to demonstrate, here it is now, the idea is to demonstrate that some spiritual hunger or need is greater than one's appetite for food. It serves to drive one to a deeper, more sincere level of faith. You understand that? So we are not impressing God. We are just so... And and in fact... When we look at the end of our sermon time today at some of the biblical examples in answering the question, when would we fast or why would we fast, you're going to see that if you look up these biblical examples, you'll see that some of the occurrences in their life, the things that were happening in their lives were so important, they were so heavy, they were so grievous that it actually works towards the taking away of your appetite to begin with. I mean, we, we have a family in our church this week that was involved in a car wreck. And uh, the dad was banged up. While he's at the hospital getting examined and x-rays, they find that there was a mass on his esophagus. Didn't know it was there. Don't know what's going on. Don't know anything. Does that take your appetite away if that's you? 
And all of a sudden, you are in a moment in time that you didn't expect or you didn't see coming. And all of a sudden, your family is in such a situation that you don't even want to eat. You just want to be on your face before God. You want to show that there is a sincerity, a need even asking God for a deeper level of faith to pray at the level you ought to pray. Maybe more information has come in about your prodigal child. And it makes you sick to your stomach to see what they're doing, running from Christ. And you just, you don't even eat. You don't even even feel like eating. Or even if you do feel like eating, you realize that the only way God is going to grip their heart is in response to prayer. And you say, I'm not going to eat. And every time you're hungry throughout the day, you realize I am driven to a deeper level here. I am burdened to pray. I want to pray for my child. I pray for my child. I pray for my child. That's how fasting works. It puts me in a position of humility before God where I recognize my utter dependence upon him and that it's more important for me to be there right now than to even satisfy my hunger pangs. Next bullet point, apart from the benefit of a focused season of prayer, there is no teaching in scripture that makes fasting of any value in and of itself. So I know that there are weight loss programs, there are fitness programs, there are guru meditation programs that encourage fasting because it'll make your skin so much better after you fast and purge yourself. And I would recommend a little essential oil on top of that, of course. It doesn't have, the Bible doesn't talk like that, okay? That's not what we're talking about. The Bible doesn't talk about that. Although there are many examples of God's people fasting in Scripture... It is only commanded in Scripture in Leviticus chapter 16 in connection with the Day of Atonement. Okay, so the Day of Atonement was that day when the high priest... We're going to actually revisit this and go into even more detail when we get back to our Hebrew study this fall. We will be talking about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies, representing the people. Part of that representation is two different goats... One of the goats is killed. His blood is representative of the need to cover sin. Always where there's sin, there's death. And blood has to be shed to pay the price for sin. Ultimately, it's a picture of our Lord Jesus' blood at the cross that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The other goat, the high priest who put his hands on the head of the goat, symbolically transferring his sin and the sin of the people to the goat and let the goat go out in the wilderness never to be seen again. It was called the scapegoat. Not the escape goat, but the scapegoat. It is gone and symbolic that our sin transferred to the goat is gone forever not to be seen again. All of this is fulfilled in Christ. It's what the writer of Hebrews is going to show them. And they're thinking about walking away from Christ. May it never be so. And so only on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where God is giving instruction to Aaron and Moses about this, and in connection with the Day of Atonement, is this given as a command. After the high priest came out of the Holy of Holies and fulfilled his functions, the entire congregation of Israel was called, and the word is by itself, is an abstain. You are to abstain. The idea was to not eat, don't comfort yourself. And so the idea here then is that there is no New Testament command to the church to fast. Nowhere in your New Testament will you find a command to fast. So you have to be careful with it. 
I already referenced in Matthew chapter six, uh, 6, verse 16, that our Lord assumed that you would fast. And when you fast... All right, we're going to have to speed up here just a little bit. Our clock continues to tick. Now let's notice then that by the time that Jesus lived... The Pharisees and many Jews, you know, it, what I just said didn't mean anything. I'm just going to keep going. By the time that Jesus lived, the Pharisees and many Jews seeking to be close to God would fast as often as two days a week. Two days a week. In fact, uh, let's do take just a minute and turn to Luke chapter 18. It's, a, it's an incredible story that our Lord tells. It is Luke chapter 18. He tells a parable here about a Pharisee and a tax collector, and it illustrates this point that by the time Jesus is teaching about fasting on the Sermon on the Mount, that the practice taught by the rabbis and rabbinical law, that is adding to the scriptures, adding to the law, the rules of men, the rabbinical law had taught the people that they needed to fast twice a week. So part of that becomes a religious ritual or legalism, and you check off. I fasted today. Check. I'm spiritual. I'm going to fast in a few more days. I check. I fasted. I did. I gave. I, I prayed. Check, check, check. And, and their heart is far from God, but on, externally, they're following through on their checklist. But our Lord Jesus addresses the matter of the heart in this parable. Look at Luke 18, verse 9. Look what he says. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That is the description, by the way, of a very religious person. Someone who is very religious. Listen to my words. They trusted in their own righteousness. They think that they did something that God looked at them and said, phew, you're okay now. You're good. I can let you pass. You're good enough. I let you pass. And they trust in their own righteousness. It's possible in this room today there are people trusting in your own righteousness. You need to know that way back in the Old Testament, God made it clear to us that our righteousnesses in his eyes are as filthy rags. And that it is only the righteousness of Christ that God can look at. He told, he told some of them who trusted in themselves that they were that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the story, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a religious leader of the day, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Notice the personal pronoun I five times. You could circle it in your Bible. Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. There it is. One of his credentials of proving that he's better than this scum of the earth tax collector over here is that he fasts twice a week. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, and this is a precious picture the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It has occurred to me that we might do an entire message on that one sentence prayer as we conclude our prayer series. That's a great prayer. I wonder if you've ever prayed it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, the haughty, self-righteous man God rejects. He knows his heart is hard and far from him. And the tax collector, he's an extortioner. He's an adulterer. He's a sinner. And he knows it. 
and he can't even lift his eyes before a holy God, and he's crushed by the weight of his sin, and all he can eke out and squeak out in his little raspy voice is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Probably never fasted a day in his life. But the guy who fasted two days a week out of rabbinical law, and so it's believed by many Bible students of this era that we're back in Matthew 6 now, that by the time Jesus taught this passage on the Sermon on the Mount, that many of the Jews there practiced fasting two days a week, the second day of the week and the fifth day of the week. And some Bible students and historians believe that the reason they did it is because those are the two days of the week that the public market was open in the streets. That was the two days in the week that, the, that all the farmers and everybody brought their goods and their food products and the bakers Everybody had their booths set up in the streets, and everybody was on the street market. And on, on those days, you distorted your face, you did, you'd stayed unkept, and you, you walked through all of the food right there in front of you, and, and you let everybody know that you are so spiritual, you wouldn't touch that food that day. Right in the middle of the food market, displaying your righteousness before men. Let's see what our Lord has to say about this. This is Jesus on fasting. Jesus on fasting. We've already read the text. Now, here's the point where I I should say we really need to move forward with this with purpose. And so you listen well, will you please? And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. The first thing I want you to see on Jesus' instruction about fasting is that Jesus says they were lacking spiritual integrity in the way that they fasted. They lacked spiritual integrity. In fact, he goes right to the point, sticks his finger in their eye, and calls them hypocrites. You'll recall that word hypocrite comes from the theater or the stage of the Greek, of the Greek uh, opera and the Greek theater. And you remember, can you remember picturing like, and even uh, we sometimes play with them as kids, a little face, a face mask that had a wooden stick on it, and you could hold that in front of your face. And that's how the Greek theater would do, and they would act out, and they would hold a stick, and this mask with a stick in front of their face. And then they would pick up their next mask with the stick on it and hold it in front of their face. And they would put it down and pick up another one, and it's the same person becoming different things, different people, different parts, maybe even an animal. And so our Lord uses the Greek word for hypocrite, which means, uh, you know, that you are disingenuous. You are not the real deal here. And he says this. He says, and it uses the word gloomy in some translations. The idea here, look what it says. For they, they look gloomy. The ESV translates the word there, gloomy. Do not look gloomy, our Lord says. That's what they were doing. Gloomy in the Greek means to appear to be suffering. To put on a persona of suffering, contorting the face, acting like you're grieving, a gloomy face, you hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Disfigure literally means to make unattractive, to make unattractive. So they would be disheveled, they wouldn't shave, they wouldn't get themselves ready for the day. They would look gloomy, they would posture themselves to be grieving and in mourning and and everybody could look at him and see oh he's fasting today it might have even meant this idea of disfigure to make unattractive it could even refer to the putting of ashes on the face 
Sometimes when people were mourning, they would take ashes and they would throw them up in the air and let them fall on themselves. Or they would pick them up out of a cold fire pit and smear themselves, smear their body with ashes, a sign of distress, a sign of despair, a sign of hopelessness. It was done during mourning. The New American Standard translates this disfigure to neglect their appearance. You see, the outward appearance did not reflect the heart at all. On the outward appearance, they looked like they were in deep spiritual distress, but in their hearts, they were hoping people would notice them and think highly of their spiritual standing. They disfigure their faces because they're fasting that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Letter B, they were looking for spiritual publicity. They were only looking for spiritual publicity, that they may be seen by others. And truly, he says, they have received their reward. That word received in the Greek means to be paid in full. Think about it. You get your you get up in the morning, today's the day, I'm going to go down to the market in front of all that food, I'm not going to eat any of it, I'm going to show everybody I'm distressed, I'm fasting, and I hope people notice me. And when they notice you, you were paid in full. That's all, you, that's all you benefited was people noticing you. Secondly, looking for this spiritual publicity is the reality that their only payment was to be seen by people. That is a pretty low level of kickback. Letter C, Christ was concerned about spiritual authenticity. So first of all, he said that they were lacking spiritual integrity. They were looking simply for spiritual publicity. And he was concerned and looking for spiritual authenticity in his followers. Look at verses 17 and 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. What does that mean? That was a response to this unkept, this idea that they would neglect their appearance, he says, don't do that. Anoint your head and wash your face. Basically, what that must mean is simply get up in the morning and get yourself ready for the day. Do your normal hygiene and grooming. Do your hair. Use your blow dryer. Put your makeup on if you're a woman. Get yourself ready for the day. Shave. Whatever it is you do for your routine. Make it normal. Spiritually authentic people know that fasting, number one, is to be a personal matter between God and man. Look what he says. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others. Number one, fasting is to be a personal matter between God and man. Number two, fasting is about God looking at the heart that is motives, parentheses, that is motives, that your fasting may be not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. What's the motive of your heart for doing this? You ever realize how much motives have to do, the motive of the heart has to do with all of our Christian living? Why do you do what you do? Why do you wash your car and armor all your tires? Well, I don't, but why do you? Why do you mow your lawn the way you mow it? Why do you whatever? What is it that you're doing? And have you ever examined your heart motive and how much, it's very convicting, how much of what we do often comes back that people might think highly of us without a thought 
that it's really what God sees in my heart that really matters. Now, I'm not against washing the car and armoring the tires. In fact, my wife requests that regularly. It just rarely happens. But you understand what I'm saying? Fasting is about God looking at the heart and your motives. Number three, fasting is to be practiced privately. Look what he says. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. We're almost done. I want you to listen closely as we wrap up with a few questions. Fasting is to be practiced, number three, privately without public posturing. So if you decide to fast, no one should be able to know it. I mean, your close family members might know it because you didn't eat your normal breakfast, lunch, or supper. But you don't tell people you're fasting. It leads to a bunch of questions. So a few questions on fasting that we can address quickly. Uh, Letter A, is it appropriate for believers today to fast? The the quick, short answer, yes. Don't announce it and don't show it. Letter B, can fasting involve abstinence from something other than food? I think the answer to that is yes. In my opinion, the answer is yes. Fasting is all about hard attitude. And, And it occurs to me that for some of you, there is something in our lives that is more important than food. It's your little phone, your smartphone that you hold in your hand. And say you wanted to fast. You say, wait, 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 wait a minute. I, 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 can't, I can't put my phone down for a whole... You want to put my phone down for a whole day? Can you see where if you had some burden... You became so burdened for your neighbor's salvation. You became so burdened for the heart condition of your wife or husband. You were so burdened about a situation at work that is overwhelming to you. You can't pay your bills and you need help from God Almighty himself that you might say, today I'm shutting off my phone and all day today I am in deep prayer. And you might not even give up food, but you would fast from your phone Give some people the shakes to think about it. Makes your throat and your gut tighten up. I, I, I was driving down Daniel Road the other day and hit the brakes. I, I forgot my phone, man. Gotta have my phone. Can't live without my phone. It's next to oxygen. I gotta have my phone. So yes, I think you can. Things that are meaningful, things that would get your attention, things that you would think about a lot during the day. The reason fasting from food is the primary Issue here is because your hunger pains remind you that you have something going on today that is so deep and so important that I, it's more important than this. When is it appropriate to fast? And here's where you're going to have to do some homework because we're going to wrap up. This is a very interesting section of scripture. I want to read a quote from my good friend, John, Pastor John French, a missionary to South Africa and a, a, a beloved brother in a Bible church in Indiana now. John is my friend. His father, Ivan French, was a longtime pastor and uh, adjunct professor at Grace Seminary back in the 70s and 80s was his peak. He wrote a wonderful little book. It's still available by that title, Principles and Practices of Prayer. It's a little book for about eight bucks that's in outline form that is very valuable. And in there, he says this about fasting. Ivan French does. We are limited in our conclusions to examples from Scripture and history. There is neither promise nor command concerning fasting in the Bible. I want to make that clear. There are no promises and there are no commands about fasting in Scripture. 
The practice or non-practice of fasting is a matter of complete liberty, Christian liberty. You need to do it if you're convicted to do it. You need to do it if you felt, if you feel led of the Spirit to do it. And we, it begs the question then, okay, when would I fast? Are there appropriate times to fast? And let me give you these very rapidly. We might fast, number one, during times of deep grief and sorrow. You'll see that repeatedly in Scripture, that God's people model fasting for us when there was great grief or distress. Number two, when faced with extreme danger, the danger was so overwhelming. It would be like a 9-11 kind of day, and you don't know if the rest of your country or city is going to blow up, and you might get so committed to prayer, and prayer meetings are being called, and we don't even eat. We just pray and fast, because we don't know if we're even going to survive. In Scripture, Second Chronicles 20, The Moabites and the Ammonites, it wasn't long ago we had that story, and Jehoshaphat was surrounded. He calls the whole country together, and he calls them to fast, and they willingly fasted and prayed because they didn't think they were going to live another day. Thirdly, when disgraced and overwhelmed by the guilt of sin, when disgraced and overwhelmed by the guilt of sin, some of you can relate to this one. You finally come to your senses. And you have sinned, and we all sin every day, but I'm talking about sin, sin that just has wreaked havoc, and maybe it's been going on for a long time, and you finally become broken before God over your sin. You don't even want to eat at this time. You just want to be on your face before God. Or maybe you're trying to break the stronghold of a sin that has you so strong that you would fast and you would put everything away from you. Maybe in that situation, especially your phone at that time. And you get rid of it. And you pray. And you, you are so disgraced and overwhelmed and ashamed that you would enter a season of fasting. Again, nobody really knows it. I didn't put it on here. Really, the best example of this is King David. You can find that in Second, in, in First and Second Samuel. But King David, that double-barreled shotgun sin that he committed of adultery with his neighbor's wife and then murdering his neighbor to cover up the pregnancy with his wife that he was the source of. And he goes for an extended season in his life of being far from God and hard-hearted. The prophet Nathaniel confronts him and he breaks and then the baby is, bo- is born sick. And there is a season where David is so distressed over his sinfulness that he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he fasts. Some of you have been there. Some of you need to get there. When discernment, number four, for God's will is needed, that's Daniel's such a good example of this. There are other examples you need discernment. I need to know God's will. We don't have a job. Now the job comes up and the job is in Cuba. What am I supposed to do with that? A young couple in our 930 service. That's exactly where they've been. Job's coming up in Cuba. Don't know what to do. Take the family. It's not safe. What do we do? You better fast. You better pray. Number five, at a time of major decision-making or defining moments, Jesus, Matthew chapter 4, this is such a defining moment in his ministry, isn't it, where he's in the wilderness fasting for 40 days? 
confronted by Satan. It's a defining moment of surrender to God's will. Paul and Barnabas, what we just read in Acts 13, when we peeked in on the worship service where they were fasting and Saul and Barnabas were sent out. Defining moments, major decisions. There it is. Number one, conclusion. Am I guilty in any way? Ask yourself this. Am I guilty in any way of using spiritual activity for public impression? Can I tell you who's really guilty of this? Pastors. You should pray for your pastor. It's not funny, Randall, I'm telling you. Who's on the microphone all the time? Who's watched by the audience all the time? And I've told you this story way back at the school at C.W. Shipley years ago when Jim or someone was teaching adult Sunday school and our group was much smaller and I would find an empty classroom. We only had one service in the cafeteria. And when it was time to start church, I was walking down the hall and I was praying, Lord, would you please bless the sermon today? And I realized that the reason I was praying that prayer was so that people would think I'm a really good pastor. And I recognized and I was, I almost, I almost broke and I realized what a form of idolatry that was to use the gospel, to use the name of Jesus so that people would think something of me. I taught the kids in chapel this week. Instrumentalists have a problem with this. We're performing with our instruments. We want people to know it's really good. We want to be excellent for God's glory. And I taught the young people that you cannot glorify and lift up the name of Christ in yourself at the same time. Secondly, am I continually testing the motives of my heart knowing that God sees it all? Do you live with an awareness of the eyes of God upon your heart? We must. Thirdly, could it be that fasting would help me, would be helpful to a more committed prayer life? I think the answer is yes. Don't tell anybody. Don't announce it. Let the Spirit of God convict you. What might God do to your neighbor that you're trying to reach for Christ? What might God do for your family, your children, our church, our ministries, if people were fasting and praying and nothing was more important to us that day than to be in the presence of God. I want to tell you something. It's easy to talk about this. It's hard to do. May God have his way in shaping us to becoming a praying church. Amen? Let's stand together, please. And so, Father, we once again, find ourselves very cognizant of our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. We ask you to help us. We ask you to show us how to live, show us how to pray. Father, may your spirit have a, a renewed liberty among us to, to show us when the right day is to fast, when the, when the need of the day demands that we go to a deeper level of committed prayer and faith that we would only do it as a mark of humility, of genuine, authentic humility, entering your presence, recognizing that we need your hand to move. We want your hand to move and we want you to do your work. We don't want to get in the way. So help us to take the teaching of our Lord Jesus to heart. Help us to grow as a praying church, I pray in Jesus' name.